Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you now for your word, and we pray that you would help us to hear what you have to say. We pray, O oh Lord, that our eyes would be open, our ears ready, our hearts soft, our minds full of light, to hear, to see, to understand, and to believe all that you have for us. We pray, O oh Lord, now that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, fill my mouth, that it would speak all that you want to say, and be with us to receive it, O oh Lord. Show us, O Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ and the man that he was, and make us that kind for the good of all who are here and our city and our world. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At Seven Mile Road, one of the words that you'll hear us use is this word complementarianism. Now, that is not a very familiar word, and for that matter, it's not a very popular word either, but what that word is is sort of an old-school biblical idea that when it comes to gender, God has made us men and women, and he has made us equal, but he has made us unique, right? This old-school biblical idea that God has made us male and female, and he has made us equal, but he's made us unique, he's made us different. Uh, equal, equal in worth, equal in value, equal in standing before God, equal in importance for God's plan for the world, equal in God's sight in the world, in the church, in the home, equal in every way, but different. Different in our callings, different in our roles, different in our functions, different in how we're supposed to operate as men and as women in God's world, in God's church, and in God's home. What I'm saying is that a, a man is not a woman, a woman is not a man, manhood and masculinity is something that is and it is different than womanhood and femininity, and nothing that I'm saying is earth-shattering or shocking. And I can almost imagine, though, that for many of you, there's sort of a tenseness, and you're quite nervous right now, right? And there's a bit of you that's thinking, Ajay, are you really about to go on some old-school chauvinistic sexist rant? And let me tell you that sexist is the last thing that I am, and I have proof for that, right? I have a document that can prove that I am not sexist. Here's the document. A few months ago, I received a letter from the NAPW. Here's what it says. Dear Ajay Thomas, it is my pleasure to inform you that your 2015 membership has been approved in the National Association of Professional Women. You were considered for this honor because of your outstanding leadership, commitment within your profession, and employment at Seven Mile Road Church. It goes on to say, inclusion in the NAPW is a privilege shared by thousands of professional women throughout America each year. Now, if that does not settle it for you, I don't know what would. I can tell you that when I received this, I was a bit confused, but overall, I was just pleased that someone had noticed my outstanding leadership, commitment within my profession, and employment here at Seven Mile Road, right? Now, I'm not bragging, but I do want you to know that many of you working women have worked for years and not been invited into the NAPW. And just in my short career, I was nominated there, right? I do want to thank Pastor Binu, who put that on Facebook for the entire world to see, right? Now, I'm joking around a bit, but here, here's the thing. In our day, in our culture, the simple sentence I said instead of being just assumed, is actually thought of as absurd, 
right? That a man is not a woman, a woman is not a man. Manhood and masculinity, womanhood and femininity are in fact different things. And I know that that's not, con that's not the case because we live in a very gender-confused world. For example, this week I was listening to a sermon and a preacher gave as an example the recent admission policy change at Mount Holyoke College. Mount Holyoke College is one of seven universities back in the day that were for women. Uh, in the old days, you had Ivy League schools which were for men, and so colleges were started for the advancement and education of women. Mount Holyoke was one of these seven universities, colleges, started for women, historically a women's college. And yet recently, it has undergone a sizable, significant admissions policy change. In fact, just a few months ago, the president of the university announced this change, could barely get her words out before being interrupted over and over again with applause, cheered by all those who hear. Now, hear from their website what it says. Mount Holyoke College welcomes applications for our undergraduate program from any qualified student who is female or identifies as a woman. Mount Holyoke remains committed to its historic mission as a women's college, yet concepts of what it means to be a woman are not static. Traditional binaries around who counts as a man or a woman are being challenged by those whose gender identity does not conform to their biology. Do you hear what Mount Holyoke is saying? Mount Holyoke is saying now we are opening the doors of admission, not just to women, but to all who consider themselves a woman. That is that no longer can you say we know what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. These things are not static but they're dynamic and so there's always the potential for change. And so that raises questions. Questions like then who is that woman or person who identifies themselves as a female? So they anticipate this and on their website here's what it says. Can you clarify who is female or identifies as a woman? It says this, the following academically qualified students can apply for admission consideration. Here they are. Biologically born female and identifies as a woman. Biologically born female identifies as a man. Biologically born female identifies as other or they. Biologically born female does not identify as either woman or man. Biologically born male identifies as a woman. Biologically born male identifies as other or they, and when that other or they identity includes woman. Biologically born with both male and female anatomy identifies as a woman. Mount Holyoke is saying, other than a biologically born man who identifies himself as a man, everybody else is fair game for admission now because our understanding of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman is so fluid that it can change at any point. In fact, they even anticipate the natural question, which is, what if you're admitted and then along the way in your junior year you change? And so they've got a section on the website too that says, if you're a student, we'll let you stay a student no matter where the journey of gender sort of takes you. And here's what I'd say. In all the wisdom of our day, we have lost our minds, right? We have gone absurd. And so the question is, how should the church of Jesus Christ respond in our day and to our culture? And I think the answer is, we should respond just like Jesus, who is both full of grace and full of truth. John 1 says that Jesus came and he was full of grace and full of truth, full of grace because we are all confused 
and broken and messed up in a thousand different ways. And if gender and sexuality happens to be your particular brokenness, then Seven Mile Road Church and churches of Jesus all over the place should be a safe place where you can work that brokenness out, where you can receive not condemnation but grace from God, from fellow sinners who are broken in a thousand different ways. And we want to be full of truth. Because in our ever-changing world and its ever-changing definitions, God has given to us his unchanging word. And so we look to his word for the understanding of what does it mean to be a man and what does it mean to be a woman. We've been working our way through the book of Ruth, and one of the beautiful things about this story is in the flesh, not just in theory, not just in a definition, but in the story of two people, you get a beautiful picture of what manhood and masculinity is and what womanhood and femininity is. And so that's what we want to give these next two weeks to. Next week, we want to consider Ruth the woman. And this week, we want to consider Boaz the man. And as we look at Boaz, we want to be asking ourselves, what is manhood? And what does God expect out of men? What has God called and designed and created men to be, particularly even how we relate to women? I want to show you three things from the text. Here's the first. Men are called first to lead. Here's the first thing I want you to hear. Men are called to lead. Men are called to lead. Now, whenever we do a, a baby dedication, now that's just you, a family has a newborn, we pray for that family and for that child. We do something that for us is a huge statement of what we believe God has spoken about manhood and womanhood, which is that we call this family up and if dad is present by God's grace, then our first words are to dad. We don't do that because that's chauvinistic or sexist. We do that because we say Dad, you bear now a unique and primary responsibility for the condition of your home. You are first, both of you are equals, but you are first, Dad, among the equals in your home. And so you bear primary responsibility for the spiritual climate and temperature of your home. We charge this dad and say to him, listen, you are the pastor of a church, and this small flock is your congregation. Your wife and your children are your flock, you're the pastor, and the spiritual climate and condition of your home is your primary responsibility. We say that because that's what we see in the scriptures. In the scriptures, when you open the Bible and you read Genesis 1, Genesis 2, you find that God created Adam first. That's not because he's better than the woman, it's just because he's unique from the woman. And the New Testament will pick up on that and say, don't you see, for God made the man first. They're equals, but he is created first among the equals because to him is given the unique charge, the unique calling to lead, to initiate, to act, to bear responsibility. We know that because even when the fall happens, if you read Genesis 3, and man sins, the woman sins, there's a tree with a fruit that God said don't touch. Eve, the wife, goes, grabs it, and eats it first. But who does God have his first conversation with? With Adam. In fact, when the New Testament comments on that and says, do you want to know why the world is messed up? It says, because of the sin of one man. Think of that. Eve ate the fruit first, and yet the responsibility of it 
falls on Adam. So that the New Testament will say, because of the sin of one man, Adam, the whole world was thrown into sin. Men have been called, created, designed by God to bear unique, primary, first among the equals responsibility. And that's what you see with Boaz. Look at verse 8. When you get to verse 8, Boaz shows up to the field. He's going to check on his work. He notices an unfamiliar face. He asks the foreman who that is. They explain to him, this is Ruth the Moabite who's come to glean. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Here's what Boaz does. Boaz steps in and he leads. He initiates. He acts. He makes Ruth's well-being his responsibility. I want you to see that. I want you to notice that. I want you to hear that. This is not his mother. This is not his daughter. This is not his sister. This is not his wife. This is not even his girlfriend. But he sees this woman in need, and he steps in. He makes her well-being his responsibility. He's going to act. He's going to initiate. He's going to lead in such a way that all of that will result in Ruth's good. In fact, if you'll notice, in just these two verses, Boaz gives seven different commands, right? In in case there's a spot in Ruth's heart that's wondering, you know, I've asked to glean. You're saying I can stay. Are you sure? Is he being just polite? Boaz doesn't just throw a, hey, feel free to stay as long as you'd like. Some kind of general vague thing that makes Ruth not really sure. Am I really welcomed here? Boaz gives seven commands. Do not glean in another field. Don't leave this one. Keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping. Go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you're thirsty, go get a drink. Seven commands so that he's leaving no room as to do I really want you here or not. He's almost commanding and saying, I'm not taking no for an answer. Don't go anywhere else. You'll be fine here. In fact, by the time this chapter's done, Boaz will have issued 14 different directives. And hear this, all aimed at Ruth's good. 14 different commands, all aimed at Ruth's good. Hear that, because that's important, men. Brothers, God has called us to be leaders. God has called us to act, to initiate, to bear responsibility, so that it might result in the good of others. That's why God has placed us in the world to lead. Hear me. So often the reason that men as leaders is such a terrifying thought, particularly to women, is because we have used that leadership for our own good, for our own pleasure, for our own comfort, to advance our own agenda, for our own power. And yet what Boaz shows us is that couldn't be further from the truth of what God means when he means leadership. What God expects when he calls a man to lead. Your leadership exists so that others might be benefited. So that others might receive good. Boaz leads. He commands. He gives 14 directives. Not to advance his well-being, but to advance roots. And in this way, Sabma Road, Boaz is preparing us for who? But the true and better Boaz. 
right? The story is going to tell us that Boaz is going to have a son who's going to have a son named David. And that David is going to have a son who's going to have a son who's going to have a son for a lot of sons until they have the son Jesus. And the true and better Boaz, the leader of all leaders, the king of all kings, comes and shows us what leadership is, and he comes into the world, and what does he announce? I didn't come into this world to be served, but to serve. And he shows us a vision of what God intended when he called men to lead. You want to know what it means to lead like a man? Well, Jesus will say, here's what it looks like. A towel wrapped around his waist with his knees bent to the floor, washing the feet of the ones he was called to lead, the ones he was called to serve. You want to know what biblical leadership for a man looks like? It's a towel. It's, it's the crown taken off, stepping off your throne, wrapping a towel around your waist, looking like a waiter, down on your knees, washing the feet of the one you were called to serve the ones God chose to entrust to your care. You want to know what leadership looks like? It's a cross on your back. To do what? To bear the responsibility of your bride's sin, even if it's not your own. Right? What, what do we see the first man do? When God shows up in the garden and holds them accountable for their sin, the first man throws his wife under the bus and says, that woman that you gave, she gave me the fruit. And yet, what does the second Adam, the better Boaz, do? He says to the father, you can take the responsibility of her sin and put it on my back. I will bear primary responsibility for even sin that wasn't my doing. Hear me. Ladies in the room, even if you're a Christian or not, don't you wish the world was filled with men like that? And brothers, whether you're a Christian or not, tell me that's not the kind of man you in your heart of hearts want to be. And if there's a gap between Jesus and you, then repent today. God didn't call you here this morning to condemn you. God called you to tell you for all who will recognize there's a gap between Jesus, the perfect man, and you, for all who will own that gap and repent, then Jesus will forgive. And, and we look not to our performance, but what he has done. And he will forgive, and he will put his spirit in us. And God's great project, men, in your life is to transform you day by day to look more like Jesus. That's what God's committed to doing in your life. And when you know that, and when you go, I am right now through repentance and faith positioned in Christ so that when God looks at me, he genuinely looks at me as if he's looking at his own perfect son. When you know that the father looks at you right now, though fallen you may be, as if you were the perfect righteous son of God, well then that puts fuel back in your heart to wipe off the dust from your knees, get back up though you failed and try again to lead to initiate, to bear responsibility so that by the help of the Spirit, you should be asking yourself, where is God in this season of my life calling me to step up and step in? Where is there brokenness, whether that be in my world, in my church, in my home? Where is there brokenness that though it would be messy to get involved, God is calling me to take responsibility and bear responsibility and take initiative and act for the well-being of others? 
husbands and future husbands, dads and future dads, hear me. What is the spiritual climate and condition of your home? Because that's on you. And that means that you can dust the dirt off your knees and try again today, filled again by the Holy Spirit. Because to you has been given the charge to disciple your family and home. And don't make that complex. If you make it complex, none of us will do it. Here's what it is. Today, at some point, you're going to open the Bible and you're going to read it with your family. And as best as you can, you might explain a verse or two to your kids. They're going to be jumping all over the place. No one's going to be paying attention. That's okay. You're discipling your family and you're going to pray. And at some point in the week, you're going to do that again. And at some point in the week, you're going to do that again. And you know what? You are stepping up and stepping in and leading and acting. God has called men to lead. Here's the second. Second, men are called by the scriptures to protect. A second calling is men are called to protect. Not only are we called to lead, we're called to protect. Look at verse 9. In that sort of list of commands that Boaz just sort of throws out, verse 9 says, Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Right, so in that litany and list of commands that Boaz throws out, one of them is, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Now, why does he say that? Remember who Ruth is. Ruth lives in a day, in a world, in a culture where your standing in society based, was based on the man you were connected to. You needed a man of some kind to give you a spot in society, to define you, to defend you. So whether that be your brother or your husband or your son or your father, some man that you're a part of. In fact, that's why when Ruth shows up, Boaz's first question is, whose young woman is this? In the, e in the West, we're individualistic. In the East, it's all about a community. And so his question is, who does she belong to? Whose woman is she? Right? Who, who's the one who's protecting or defining or defending her? But what's Ruth's story? Ruth's husband is dead. Ruth has no sons. Ruth had a father, but she left him in Moab to come and care for Naomi. She's got no man, no brother, no son, no father, no one in the world to defend her. And now she, a young woman, is working in a field with a bunch of young men. And so what does that mean? That means she is vulnerable in every way you could imagine vulnerability. Socially vulnerable, physically vulnerable, vulnerable in every possible way. And so into that, what does Boaz do? He steps in and says, I have told my men, no one is to touch you. I've told my men, no one, the, the text almost goes so far as to say, is to lay a finger on you. And in chapter 3, as you keep reading, you'll find his concern is not only to shield Ruth physically, but to shield her reputation even socially. In every way that Ruth needs to be shielded, Boaz is concerned to shield her, to protect her. Why? Because what part of what God has called and wired and designed a man to do is to protect. It's, it's hardwired into who we're supposed to be. When God made the first man and the first woman and the serpent came by that tree, Adam was supposed to fight and do battle by that tree to guard and protect his precious wife. This is what God has wired us, brothers, to be. This is what God has wired our sons to be. This is the vision we ought to pass down even to them. I'll give you an example. Micah, my four-year-old boy, 
all the time we're having this conversation. In fact, just literally yesterday, last night around 8 o'clock, Micah threw his sister against the wall, right? His seven-year-old sister shoved her as hard as he could. And so when he did, he knew he did wrong. He starts weeping and wailing because he knows what's coming. And then we have the conversation. And I say to Micah what I say all the time. Micah, what did God make you? And my four-year-old boy knows to say, a man. Now, he's a boy. He's not a man. I'm not trying to take the boyhood out of him or the wonder out of him, but I am trying to give him a vision of what the Lord is making him. So, Micah, what did God make you? A man. And, Micah, what does a man do? And Micah knows now to say he protects. That's right, Micah. He protects. Did you protect your sister? No. And then after a little while, with tears in his eyes, I promise the, the four-year-old knows to pray, God, help me to protect my sister and my mom and be a man. Right? Now, listen to me. I am not passing down some old-fashioned, chauvinistic, sexist idea to my boy. I'm telling you, whether you're a Christian or not, in your gut, you know this is right. And in your gut, you know this is true. This is the way the world is supposed to be. I heard a preacher named Matt Chandler who preached a great sermon, and he gave two wonderful illustrations about this. Just sort of the point that we all know this in our gut. Back in July of 2012, if you remember, in Aurora, Colorado, there was a midnight showing of Dark Knight Rises. Awful night. A midnight showing of Dark Knight Rises, theater packed, and among the folks who went were three under 30-year-old men and their girlfriends to go to the opening showing of Dark Knight Rises. If you remember on that horrible night, a madman walked in with his weapons and just began to level everyone down with bullets, fired just randomly into the crowd. All three of these 20-year-olds, not their wives, not their mothers, not their sisters, all three of these 20-year-olds jumped onto their girlfriends and hovered over them and shielded them from bullets all three died protecting their girlfriend. In fact, some of the girlfriends sustained injuries because the bullets went through their boyfriend's bodies and hit them. And when they all died, it was universally applauded as the most right and heroic thing to do. And in fact, in that same year, there was a cruise ship in Italy that went down. 32 people died. And in that cruise ship, it was later told that men were shoving aside women and children to get down to the life rafts. And when that broke out, it was universally condemned. Now, why does that matter? If there's no difference, why does any of that matter? And the reality is, in your gut, you know. It's the same reason why if at 2 in the morning you hear some noise downstairs, brothers, you are not going, baby. you go check that out <laughs> and if you are the men in this room will have a conversation with you right <laughs> in your gut I don't care if she's a ninth degree black belt right if someone's gonna die you're gonna die first that's all there is to it right because we know this is what God has called men to whether that be physically whether that be socially whether that be emotionally in whatever ways God has entrusted some to us we are to shield them. That's what God has wired us to do. And Boaz protects Ruth. And in this way, what's he doing, Samarun? He's preparing us for the true and better Boaz. 
the one who would shield us from sin and from the penalty of God's wrath for our sin. You, you, you think of that. That's what Jesus has done for you, Seven Mile Road. Just two weeks ago when it was zero degrees out, stupid illustration, I was outside at 4.30 in the morning because we had to leave quickly, and so I'm, I'm trying to wipe off the snow. And if you remember, it's zero degrees. The windshield feels like negative 20, and the wind is blowing me over. I'm trying to blow off the snow, and this thing is just attacking. And, and literally as I'm standing there, I thought to myself, what if God just let his creation go on us? I mean, what would that be like if, I mean, this was just a wind in northeast Philadelphia, but what's a tsunami like? What's it like when God just lets go of his hand and lets creation at us? What would it be like for the full fury of God's wind or waves or fire or whatever it may be to fall on us? And yet, Samaro, do you know what the gospel says? The gospel says that the full fury of God's unrelented wrath is coming at you. And there's nothing to hold it back. Like a dam, God has been storing all his wrath against sin. And one day he's going to let that dam go and it's going to come. And the only hope you and I have is that Jesus has shielded us from that coming wrath. That he has insulated us from the penalty of our sins. So that when the full fury of God's wrath falls, you who are in Christ have been, what? Hovered over, protected Jesus, as it were, let the, the bullets fly through his body so that not one would graze you. This is what Jesus does, not only protecting your salvation, but protecting you even now from your enemy. Think of that. My, my daughter, seven years old, one of her favorite verses in the Bible, I don't know why this one lodged in her mind, is John 10 where Jesus says, I will hold mine in my hand and nothing can snatch them away. She loves that. In fact, we play this game where she tries to pry open my hands and I won't let her, right? And then she prays, God, nothing can grab us. Satan can't grab us from your hand. So is the protection of Jesus because that is how he is. That is what we as men are called to be. So tell me, ladies, whether you're here and you're a Christian or not, wouldn't you love a world filled with men like that? And brothers, isn't that the kind of man you so desperately in your heart of hearts want to be? And where we fall short and there is a gap, God did not bring you here this morning to condemn you, but to tell you there is a perfect man who stood in your place to forgive even your failings. When like Adam, we watched the enemy drag our wives away with our hands in our pockets rather than fighting by that tree. When, when the world is filled with industries like porn and human trafficking because men don't protect, into that world the Son of Man came and did battle by the tree and won his bride and defeated his enemy and protected us. And so that fills and fuels our hearts to say, if he forgives me, if he'll have me again, I want to be back at this. I'm going to dust off the dirt from my knees. I'm going to get at this again. God has called men to lead. God has called men to protect. Last and finally, God has called men to provide. Here's the third and final one. God has called men to provide. If you go back to the garden, God gave Adam a job. And the job didn't come after sin entered the world. The job came before sin. 
right? God in this perfect creation said, here, man, is a job. I need you to work. I need you to keep this garden. He basically says, work and keep the garden, right? I want you to make the rest of the world look ordered and well-kept like this. And so he gives him a job. And in fact, when sin enters the world, it's not that now man has a job. It's now that man's job will be hard. Right? What does God do? He frustrates the work of man. And he says, you're still going to provide. It's just, it's going to come from the sweat of your brow, thorns and thistles by which you'll make bread for your family. It's, it's still that you've been called to work. It's that it will cost you something. But, but our call is to provide. And what do you see here? Ruth shows up to Boaz's field. And what's her condition? She's desperate and she's hungry. And what does Boaz do? Boaz provides. A few weeks ago, Pastor Binu preached on this section and he taught us, you know, remember there's a law in that day that says a widow could sort of glean towards the edges. That's sort of the welfare, the food stamps of Israel's policy. So you could glean towards the edges. But what does Boaz do? In these seven commands, what does he do? He says, you don't have to go anywhere else and you don't have to glean after the edges. You don't have to do the work that men do and women do, cutting and gleaning. All I want you to do is be like one of my workers. And you can just take whatever you want. And in fact, he goes to his workers and he says, no one better say a thing to her. I've told her she can grab whatever she wants. No one should say a thing. And in fact, in verse 15 and 16, he goes even further and he tells his men, listen, not only can she glean here and not only should you not rebuke or reproach her, I actually want you to even purposely throw out some stuff uh, from your bundle so that she can grab more. See, here's the thing. The letter of the law says you should let them glean. The spirit of the law was feed them. And Boaz is not going to be satisfied with just obeying the letter of the law. He's going to generously feed and provide for this woman. In fact, look at verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Here's what the scene is. One author named Paul Merriller, he describes it like this. It's sort of like, you know, Ruth has been working all day, and she knows her place there, but then lunchtime comes, right? It's sort of like if you remember, if you've ever moved to a new school district, Right, you're in grade school. You remember what the worst part of that first day was? It's not class, because in class, you're, you're just filing along with everyone. You sit in an assigned seat. You're just there. The worst part is what? Is lunch, right? Because when lunch comes, now you've got that tray, and you have no idea where you're supposed to sit. The jocks are over there. The nerds are over there. The cool kids are over there. The drama team is over there. And you just wish you could belong somewhere. Do you sit by yourself? Then you look like a loser. Do you go with somewhere? But then what if they reject you? And so you're sort of paralyzed. And imagine at that moment with your lunch tray, the captain of the football team says, come sit here. Verse 14, and at mealtime, Boaz said, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers. There's this Moabite, foreign, barren, nobody with her widow and Boaz invites her to the table and includes her and seats her there. And he doesn't just seat her. Verse 14 tells us that he then passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Hear this. Don't miss this. He serves her. 
He loads her plate until she's got so much she can't eat, and then she has more to bring home to Naomi. And and just a two-second tangent, he serves her. You have to know in the Eastern world and culture, that never happened. Right? I can tell you, I, I'm Indian, so my parents, I've seen this for all my life. If there was dinner, if there were guests to the house, mom served everybody and, in fact, didn't even sit until most of the people had finished eating. Nowhere does a man spoon over food for the woman and wait till she's had enough. In fact, just so you get it, in the Old Testament, there's one other scene where a man serves food, and that's Abraham, and the only reason he does it is because God and two angels were his guests. (laughs) God and two angels, that's what it took for a man to serve the food over, okay? But here, Boaz, now think of that. If you're chauvinistic, you go, no way, that's not how it's supposed to be. She's going to serve me. But feminism, likewise, would say, we're equal. I don't want any of your chivalry. But the gospel says, listen, God has called men in every way to seek the well-being, to use whatever they can in whatever ways they can for the good of those around them. And so Boaz gives in such a way, here's the point, Ruth comes to the field desperate and hungry, and how does she leave after her interaction with Boaz? Satisfied, full, and with plenty left over. The point, brothers, is that that should be the narrative of every person that crosses our path as well. That the woman, the wife, the girlfriend, the coworker, the person around you should be better off after your encounter than you found her. That's God's call. And that means then we have work forever to do in this endless pursuit to make better the lives of those God has entrusted to our care. There's more work to do tomorrow because I am seeking to make better the life of those who are entrusted to my care. Ladies, hear me, whether you're a Christian or not, don't you wish the world was filled with men like that? And brothers, once more, in your heart of hearts, isn't this what you so desperately want to be? And where there is a gap, God has not called you this morning to condemn you, but to cause you to look to the better and true Boaz. Because what Boaz is getting you ready for is what? Is the one who's going to also have a table for you and who's also going to invite the the outcast to that table and who is like an eager groom going to hover over his bride ready to serve her and give her till she has all that she needs and more, and will provide even if it costs his body and his blood to do so. And where we fall short of that, don't give up, but instead press in, repent, look to the God-man, the perfect man, and see that in Christ you have now been positioned where Jesus is. The Father has no condemnation for you, despite your failings. And when you own up to your sin, rather than pushing you away, you actually get brought deeper into what God intends to do in his world, in his home, in his church. Your repentance is part of what God wants for you. 
to own this and then by the Spirit whose great project, brothers, in our lives is day by day to conform us into the image of Christ will make us look more like him. And so make it your aim, brothers, with repentance and with fresh faith today, looking to Jesus, the hero who was alone the true man, to lead, to protect, and to provide so that those who cross your path would leave better than when they first met you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now for the help of the Holy Spirit to come and apply this word to our hearts. Oh Lord, we pray that you would take all who are high and lifted up and proud and right now humble them. Show us our failures, our weaknesses. Bring to memory the faces of people we have hurt and used and abused and humble us. And for all who are humbled down to the ground right now, would you lift us up? Would you comfort us and console us by your gospel that there is no unforgivable sin? There is no failure, no weakness, no shortcoming that you will not pardon. And that sinful though we may be and though we have failed a thousand times, even today we stand in Christ. And the Father looks at us not because of our performance to our brides, but because of Jesus' performance to his. And help us to stand secure in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit that Jesus died and rose again to give us. Enable us to do the works you've called us to do. To day by day, press in and press on towards what you have for us. We pray that there would be a culture like that at Seven Mile Road and that that culture would spill out into our city and bless our world. Do more than we know to ask. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.